Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. In 2015, the Government of India signed the Framework Agreement with the NSCNIM, a landmark deal that was seen as a big step towards a broader Naga Peace Accord. Within five years, however, prospects of such a deal appear to have faded as new sets of differences have emerged between the two sides. While a letter from the Governor to the Chief Minister of Nagaland criticizing the NSCNIM lies at the heart current controversy, there are deeper reasons at work. In this episode of Interpreting India, we seek to unpack the recent setback of the Naga peace process. Why did talks between the government and the NSCNIM after the agreement fail to yield desired results? What are the factors that shape the positions of the two sides as well as that of the other parties involved in the negotiation? And finally, what will happen to the peace process going forward if the antagonism between the government and the NSCM continues to sharpen. Joining us today to discuss these developments in the Naga peace process is Professor Sanjeev Barua. Professor Barua is Professor of Political Science at Bard College, New York. His teaching and research interests include political economy, nations and nationalism, Asian borderlands, and South Asian politics. A prolific author, writer, and commentator on the history and politics of Northeast India, his publications include classic work, India Against Itself, Assam and the Politics of Nationality, Durable Disorder, Understanding the Politics of Northeast India, Beyond Counterinsurgency, Breaking the Impasse in Northeast India, and most recently, In the Name of the Nation, India and its Northeast, published this year by Stanford University Press. Dr. Barua's opinion pieces have appeared in a range of outlets, including the Indian Express, and other Indian and international newspapers. He serves on the editorial board of the journal Studies in Indian Politics and of the book series South Asia in Motion from Stanford University. Apart from his position at Bard College, he's also a global fellow at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, Norway. Sanjeev, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to have you with us. Sanjeev, I want to begin by asking you to give us a broad sense of how you see the trajectory of the Naga peace talks. If we go back to 2015, when the framework agreement was signed, there was considerable amount of fanfare and publicity. And a lot of expectation was raised that this might at last signal a breakthrough, one of the longest running internal conflicts in India. Yet five years down the line, I think optimism has curdled. Could you begin by telling us what you think are the factors that have led to this impasse? Well, I think the framework agreement, you are right, were highly publicized. But when I look back, though, it seems to me Mr. Sue's illness, who, as you know, passed away soon after that, was clearly a great motivator for why it was held at that point of time. So it wasn't isn't clear to me at all that there was really much of an agreement, frankly. Uh, there was a hope, if you like. 
so I think that's why in some uh, in some ways it was really um, advertised in such a way that it raised expectations. But uh, it was very clear from the beginning that really there were not huge level of agreement. I remember, for instance, soon after the framework agreement, Mr. Muiva gave a talk where the NSCN always celebrates the Naga Independence Day on the 14th of August. So it was within 10 days or so of the framework agreement, he talked about shared sovereignty. Right. And then there wasn't, you know, clearly there was a lot of press coverage about does it mean that they have not given up on their uh, on the position but, you know, and then it, everybody pretended that things were fine, right? That actually there was some agreement about shared sovereignty. So it seems to me that now when I look back, it is really wasn't much of an agreement at that point of time. And, and, and the big shift that has happened, it seems to me, that if you recall, there was, a, there was a talk about the unique history of the Nagas. These phrases become quite important. Mr. Vajpayee, Atal Bihari Vajpayee used the term. Nagas were constantly repeating. At least minimally what we can take is that that phrase meant that a Naga agreement is going to be very different from any other of the insurgent movements. Nagas have a very different sense of their history. All of that was recognized. So that inherently meant that the Naga agreement has to be broader than simply signing of a peace agreement. State of Nagaland continues as, as before. So the fact that certain symbolic items like a Naga flag became very important to me reflects the fact that there's a disconnect between the expectations of the NSC and IM and, and the kind of agreement that the government of India is prepared to sign at the moment, right? And so that I would say is, uh, and, and the fact that some symbols, after all, symbols are interesting, right? One can say a Naga constitution or a Naga flag. These seems, seems to be the two big hurdles. One can think of them as symbols, but the India of 2020 is not prepared to grant those symbols. After all, exactly after a after after uh, after say the the Kashmir uh, changes in Kashmir, right? Where which after all Kashmir has a separate flag. It seems to me as a political incapacity to make such symbolic concessions more than anything else. I I I'll, I consider them symbols. After all, lots of you know the right here. Why since I live in the U.S., Quebec has a flag, so a state having a flag is not as big a deal as it sounds, right? But on the other hand, considering symbols is really sometimes easier, sometimes not that easy. So the politics of India, it seems to me, makes those symbols big, very big at this moment, point of time, right? As a result, very difficult to grant. So it seems to me that if symbols like that were really, we are willing to give in, um, then I would say the settlement could be reached. Uh, and I think in seventy, and when the framework agreement was signed, there was no clear agreement that there were the near. There was not a not an agreement that these issues will not be conceded, if you like. So, if I think about it, it's really a, a number of you know minor symbols that were involved, but yet it is difficult in contemporary India to make concessions of that sort. Right, and um, as you said, I mean perhaps at the time when the framework agreement was concluded. These were not entirely outside the realm of possibility, so to speak. But perhaps more later developments have made it, uh, you know, much more ruled out, which would suggest that the impasse we are in is much more contingent because of the broader kind of politics and political agenda that the Modi government has pursued in its second term in office, vis-a-vis uh, -vis particularly, you know, Kashmir. And in Kashmir, again, as you said, the same two issues were in play, right? Kashmir is the only state of India which had its own constitution and also which had its own kind of flag and so on. So when, when you are kind of so 
ostentatiously and in the name of sort of national unity being away with uh, the you know all those symbols even if hollowed out constitutional provisions for that state then granting this becomes difficult but but is your sense that you know it is as contingent as that or were there other longer term issues in play as well which have made it now much more difficult for any sort of an agreement to be well it seems to me there is a re- i think that when i think about the naga movement clearly it was different from other movements it began after all way back you know even before independence right so it seems to me that understanding naga movement in its own terms we were we're beginning to we're prepared to do it some time ago if you like what i it, it took time after all say when you think about you know go back to the 50s etc the the enormous the, the sending the army etc wasn't necessary even even very mainstream figures like mr rustam ji who was the chief secretary of assam he really has he was amazed by how we even landed up having a policy like that right so after all the naga movement was if you i think of it as really a you know a, a movement happening in a very interesting interesting context of 1940s where where if where i would say connected to the rise of christianity lots of issues involved but it was really an assertion of identity assertion of really rejection of certain colonial categories like tribe after all the naga nation then was really not so much connected to this not an indian nation as it's almost a separate history if you like we are a nation in the sense we are not a tribe that kind of pride involved right it's a very quite an interesting history i find so in about clearly india you know i would say my book's overall point is 47 really india was taken aback by 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 what was going on in these in these excluded areas etc etc so it seems it seems to me it's part of my larger story is that really the imperial frontier spaces were different right we know for instance the northwest frontier province it has become very globally known next to afghanistan it is troubled but the idea that structurally these two were similar if you like you know lots of areas the state was barely present right and then you were really had kind of a colonial imperial diplomacy involved buffer state kind of an idea so the imperial frontier spaces were very distinct spaces right so except for some parts of assam uh, contemporary assam and a little part uh, and and what is now in bangladesh the district of seleth much of what you call north is india were some form of indirect rule or the other right so a very small part of it was directly ruled so and the idea that some of the indirectly ruled areas even at the time of the british de- departure the state was barely present so naga movement arises out of that kind of a context right so so where they basically say we are a naga nation and it seems to me it was wide open in terms of what it means kind of negotiations so clearly there was a lot of early mistakes in my view in responding to it in the 50s and 60s right and we are not very good at apologizing one can argue that countries since the period of 50s itself became constitutive after all there is enough evidence to show that the more nagas became christians during country insurgency we think of the spread of christianity as as colonial but more people became christians after colonials left during counter insurgency so all of that tells me that something went wrong we are never prepared to really uh, um, uh, say ap- apologize ap- apologies don't come naturally to to the indian state uh, state machinery and by the time indirectly we came to terms was in 1990s when we began using vocabulary like unique history 
So, and then there has been a backtracking, if you like, right? So in the same, it seems to me that the unique history kind of a discussion, this phrase is, of course, a very contextual meaning, was really, Nagas were reading that as being prepared to make certain kinds of a concessions. But what was hap- what happened in more recently is that uh, almost as if you really were trying to, you had all the discussion with the NSC and IM, the most powerful force, and now you're willing to really drop the NSC and IM and then discuss with the rest and hurriedly put together some kind of a peace, peace agreement. So you're right. I mean, the fact that the, the kind of a, uh, pan-Indian politics has changed probably has shaped that, but it's very hard to say from a distance. But certainly it is, becomes very clear that it, India is not prepared to make the kind of concessions, symbolic concessions, if you like, that are necessary. That, that I would say, was the larger story. And, I mean, if I may just pick up on a point that you mentioned in the past about the, you know, the, the religious uh, Christian dimension, the Nagas. How much do you think that matters in the context of the overall ideology of, Indian politics, these, which is to say that a, a Christian sort of majority state, which is carrying out a secessionist campaign, I mean, is it, does that make it much more difficult for the government, especially this government, which, which clearly has a certain conception of what the identity of India is, in order to be able to make compromises with a state which is once again going to be having a Majority of people belonging to a very different religion? Well, we can only guess, but one thing is certainly true that, say, uh, various forces which are connected to the current ruling establishment in the last few years, for instance, have been big on promoting uh, Rani Gaidiru, right? Who is also a kind of a Naga personality, not from Nagaland, from Manipur. They have been, uh, so that. And, and, and that was a very interesting little episode that appears in Nehru's discovery of India, et cetera, et cetera, where, uh, where, where, I, where I would say she was some kind of anti-colonial resistance uh, person and has been enormously kind of celebrated in more recent years, in the last few years. So if one takes something like that into account, clearly its appeal to many people is that Naga Gaidilu was different because she was it was not a kind of Christian assertion, if you like. So it's entirely possible that 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 there is some hope in certain quarters that we can really undo the Naga movement and really not uh, and regard even the Nagaland state as a mistake, if you like, right? After all, even the and when you consider uh, the Nagaland state was a product of 1963. So it's entirely possible by 71, we have we be, begin having the different kind of a names, right? We have Arunachal Pradesh, very Sanskritic name, Meghalaya, very Sanskritic name. So it's entirely possible the concession made to Nagaland, even calling it a Nagaland, an English name, is entire. We can only guess is entirely possible. There's is even that is regretted. So if so, in some way, but we can as outsiders, you and I can only guess. But it's certainly plausible to think that. Uh, that these kind of a larger ideological issues, a Christian state, a kind of a, a movement for which Christianity is important, uh, till fairly recently, uh, Naga movement used terms like Nagaland for Christ. They don't use it anymore. Uh, is is a is a consideration. But as I said, you know, what is interesting to me about the entire discussions, very little is really made public, right? So in, in some ways, it is really a very peculiar mode of discussion entirely secretive. We don't know even after five years, we, we, we only now know what the framework agreement had or didn't have. 
So very hard to guess from the distance. So and 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 if since there is no official information, we can only guess. And I think it's entirely possible that there has been a reluctance to to make concessions, which really in to a or to a movement which involves Christian symbols, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sure. So one of the other sort of key uh, objectives of the NSC and IM, but also of other elements in Naga society, is the demand for a naga limb a territorial body which not just comprises today's nagaland but various other naga communities across other northeastern states like arunachal sam manipur but also across the border in burma as well right now this has evoked uh you know antagonistic responses from the other states especially manipur but also assam arunachal pradesh who see it as an attempt to kind of carve out their territory and incorporate it as part of a Larger Nagaland. Now, this has even earlier in the 2000s. This was a major sort of sticking point in terms of how the central government was, with how far the central government was willing to go in order to accommodate the NSCN uh, demands and so on. But I'm just wondering, given the context of the BJP, which is the ruling party's increasing sort of political dominance and footprint across northeastern Indian states, does that also add an additional layer of dynamic? saying that you know this is an issue on which there can be no compromise does that make it much more complicated is already a complicated kind of a demand but now with the bjp's increasing political profile in the northeast does this issue become much more significant when it comes to the prospects of a peace uh-huh. You know, I, I, it's impossible to to, to 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 think about it without bringing in the long term yes, i i think that you know, after all, the Naga movement emerged in areas when I talk about the imperial frontier space. What I have in mind is that, you know, literally, if you think about the territorial spaces, it is really from, say, directly governed areas to indirectly governed areas to barely governed areas to native states. So in some ways, Naga movement emerged precisely because of the nature of the imperial space, if you like. It, it, it sort of transcends all kinds of boundaries. So difficult is going to be difficult, or if you if you really dealt with it in the 50s, respected it seriously. It seems to me we could have really dealt with it very differently. In some ways, now when I think about the, uh, think about the way the discussion has gone, it's almost like what I call it, uh, kind of looking for a square solution to a round problem. After the Manipur clearly is a stakeholder. So I think it seems to me we have really gotten stuck in the, the impasse is precisely because our solution, negotiation with one group, secretive negotiations, is not the format in which you could find a solution. So, but on the other hand, we don't seem to have a capacity now to suddenly do a, look for a different kind of a solution. So in terms of a different kind of a, a different, not solution, a different kind of a framework for discussing. So that tells me about a political incapacity more than anything else. So there was no particular reason why the situation with the concession to the Nagas and and, and the Manipuri position had to become so confrontational. Um, so after all, we had Naga origin uh, Manipuri leaders who were chief ministers of Manipur, uh, Naga origin Manipuri leaders who were, who were in the members of parliament. So all of that in my long due view was possible. But we didn't do it then. So right now we are really, it is more a matter of incapacities uh, to, to really change the format. So we are stuck with, uh, because of past dependency, if you like, we are stuck with a position of looking for a, 
uh, a square solution to a round problem. Why round problem? I mean, it's, I'm taking it for, as a metaphor. It really involves different kinds of people sitting down in a room rather than a, rather than a government. You know, the model very much of a bilateral state-to-state discussion. You're discussing with NSA and IM, and stakeholders are already defined certain other groups. But the problem really doesn't involve only them. So I think our incapacity to really reframe the problem and reframe the discussion is, is, is the bottom line. So, and, at, and, and you're right, in, in recent years, if you look at more temporarily, uh, the fact that, um, uh, that, that uh, the BJP is in power in these places uh, didn't have to. After all, one can say power is also means that you can really make more concessions. You can really, you know, you can have, they're all part of the same political party. Now, the, after all, in the Naga government, uh, the, the Nagaland state government, uh, also has a kind of a, uh, uh, the United Front um, has a, uh, is a partner of the BJP. So one can say just the way in the Congress regime, if they're doing the Congress system, the fact that the same party is in power was not necessarily a drawback. If anything, it was really, uh, uh, it, it allowed more, more kind of a creative problem solving. But we are not doing that. But I think that is really what I would say my biggest, another point I make in my book is really we're not really being very creative about problem solving. We're not even thought about what are the peculiarities of an imperial frontier space, which is giving us these problems. So that's, I know that's not directly what you're asking, but it's, but that's basically one of my goals. The Naga movement becomes even more interesting if you bring in all, if the imperial frontier space, right? Because it is really all over the place. It even extends to Burma, right? Um, the, the, the Naga demand. But but one can see sympathetically and look at it as really a very interesting political imaginary, which goes back to the nature of the of the of the uh, uneven sovereignty of imperial space. But to, to, to but we really have never gone there. If you like, in the, in the 1950s, a reaction was really again a political incapacity. If you like, right? If you and it is not me. Even if you look at people like uh, people like uh, uh, Rustamji, who was, as I said, a, a civil service, they, they will recognize there's lots of mistakes made. Uh, it is almost as if you know, and the kind of mistakes are extraordinary. After all, you know, say uh, uh, the kind of colonial policies where that you you really uh, some areas you barely have any state presence as a result your policy was if if somebody somebody attacks you you just go and have a kind of expedition right that kind of ideas were behind the our armed response to the to the to the to the naga movement in the 50s and people like rustamji has said that is not my my words so the fact that we have done very little kind of a uh, thinking about what went wrong uh, uh, I think is 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 the is 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 the larger problem. So it is not BJP specific, if you like. I would say that our uh, kind of a, even prior to the BJP, our government had not been very good as our, in dealing with the northeast and now in in the in the, in the Naga conflict in particular. So it requires some fairly uh, fairly how shall I put it uh, revisiting a lot of our past responses. Only then we might be able to come up with some a durable kind of a piece. Yeah, sure. I was just saying, Sanjeev, that I agree with you. Uh, this is not a problem that is of recent making. As you say, there is a long history of this being a certain kind of imperial space, which then has to be translated into the matrix of a nation state. And then there is nationalist politics of various kinds. And the BJP is, I was only raising that question to say that it's a relatively new entrant in this space. And so maybe much more sensitive to the, uh, you know, the viewpoints of other players in this now, but I thought the point which you were making about 
this being an exercise which has gone on for very long as effectively a bilateral exercise between the government of India and the NSC and IM, the few other actors perhaps you know, thrown in is an important one. Uh, and you also mentioned that perhaps now the government might even be contemplating that it's time to kind of, you know, let go of this bilateral mode and talk with other groups. So could you give us a, a sense of what are the other stakeholders who are currently in play? I mean, we know that there's the Naga National Political Groups, civil society bodies that tied to the But I'm just wondering if we have to open up the table and uh, bring in more stakeholders in order to enable a sort of a more satisfactory solution to emerge, what might be those kinds of groups that we need to be thinking about? I would say Manipur, Arunachal Pradesh, you know, and, and think about the Nagaland-Assam borders. These are not, and it's not so much that you have to bring in, bring them into, into end state. Just recognize the nature of this territory. As you know, Nagaland and Assam has an old kind of border dispute. What is this border dispute? Essentially, the border is the old inner line. Right. Uh, the whole thing looks like, uh, you know, officially it's called a reserve forest. If you go there, you find it's not really, it's a, it's a legal fiction. All kinds of people are settled there. So the issues are so complicated. So if you, it seems to me that, and after all, there are people, if you say if officially reserve forest and all kinds of people are settled there, you really are dealing with all kinds of interesting economic actors, people who benefit from, uh, from say, uh, from uh, if there are resource conflicts in that area. The fact that you have an inner line means that rules up in the state of Nagaland are different from the rules on the outside the state of Nagaland. Right. So in the way that, say, um, as you as you, I'm sure you know, know this, say uh, the, the tribal property kind of a, a regime that exists in Nagaland don't exist here. Issues of that sort. So the idea that you wouldn't bring those issues into your discussion, into your thinking seems absurd to me. Um, so that in some ways that the Nagaland are some border dispute is part of the story. So if one has to start fresh Clearly, one has to bring in the reality that the Naga um, national imaginary, if you like, is much bigger than the Nagaland state. In fact, Nagaland state was nothing else but a way of dealing with the problem of the, of the Naga movement. Hurriedly put together, hoping that this will settle it. It didn't settle it. If it didn't settle it, minimally, it seemed all kinds of other players involved in areas like the Nagaland-Assam border or Arunachal uh, or, or Manipur should be brought in. And if I and and I would say, even when you look at the Mizoram Accord, which is often thought about as a, as a, as a, as a peace accord that worked, when you think about the fact that the Mizo movement was not just happening in Mizoram, one can argue that the Mizo peace is the other side of Manipur's non-peace. Think of a group. There's a group called the called the Bruce, for instance. Bruce were really. They left left uh, uh, Mizoram in nineties, I think, some conflict to Tripura. They still can't be settled uh, settled in, uh, in, in into Mizoram. So the so in a way that we are really not uh, we, we 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 like quick solutions. So Mizo Accord to me itself there's a scope for enormous rethinking. And one one thing that the Mizo movement was not really a movement in Mizoram. It was much bigger. It involved even even the Chin areas of Burma. So, it's, so it's, I would argue that uh, that Mizo movement itself gives us some some lessons. That Mizo movement is very peaceful, 
but at the same time all these other areas which are which are inhabited by by meso in the broad sense people if you like the meso chin in these categories get tricky are not settled are not peaceful and nagaland in that sense is it provides it gives us an opportunity right why don't we have a settlement where a large area gets more peaceful and that we can do only if you bring in these other territories i'm just using the geographical ter- territory but i don't mean the state of arunachal should be present or the state of manipur should be present that's not what i mean but stakeholders in the larger area and in the sort of in the current setup i mean do you think the government of india is actually risking a return to certain forms of violence if it allows the discussions with nscn to kind of fall off the map as it were just to say that do you think there is an appreciation on the part of the government of india that this is a situation which is not going to relapse into an insurgency which is why they may perhaps actually either keep dragging this out or even tell the nscm that you are not the only entity and that we are going to sort of broaden this talks out or is a return to violence not really a realistic scenario given more than two decades of a ceasefire in I tend to think return to violence is not realistic, but the other side of it is not great either. Even if you don't have a return to pay, my my larger point is that why on earth would you have a part of the country where you have the Armed Forces Special Powers Act for sixty years? Right. So as a, as a, as a Democrat with a small D, I think it is embarrassing to have a part of the country where you have that. That itself tells me that if, about the failures of other peace settlements. right so in a way just because it is difficult to go back to the jungle as it were doesn't mean you are, you are we as as the people who are making decisions should be happy with the uh, status quo uh, so to so if we are not happy with this so it may be difficult to go back to to the to the jungle as they put it but never that doesn't mean that we really have a peaceful nagaland or peace or or really a wonderful kind of a uh, area uh, which which we let's let's use the word nagal nagalim for a moment meaning that the peace is not made in the state of nagaland we are talking about we are talking about a fairly large area including parts of manipur so if we want those areas to be peaceful to be to be to be really uh, let let's give one test for example uh, if we assume that clearly no part of a democratic country should have a law like the armed forces special powers act if you make that the test then just not having an arm uh, arm group to me is not enough the fact that we're not being able to withdraw the armed forces special powers that should be the test and 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 if you take use that as a test certainly i don't see how you could really not settle the naga conflict and 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 withdraw the armed forces special powers act from the region in fact the fspa was renewed uh, recently despite the fact that you had a uh, relative peace for quite a while in the Look, essentially, the Armed Forces Special Powers Act in Northeast India is as almost as old as the Republic. Goes back to the 1958. So, and and it began with trying to dealing with the Naga movement. So, if we really take serious account of all these policy failures, that really calls for a kind of a rethinking about not repeating what we have done before, and that is where I think we should start ideally. Right, and the other sort of. policy instrument that has been used over this period is to try and keep you know unrest under control by effectively throwing money at the problem right through the agenda of so called development whereby you say that then we are going to sort of roll out more 
uh, infrastructure projects, create various kinds of things. There is a project of what in the American context you've got for paralleling as well, which goes along with this. Uh, but you know, how useful is it to continue down this twin approach of, on the one hand, saying that we are going to use uh, instruments like the AFSPA and the power of state, but on the other hand, we are going to literally throw money at the problem to the extent that we can and hope that some of it sticks some hands and that that will keep. How much do you think, you know, of this is really working out in the context and is part of the things that we need to review as part of broader attempt at rethinking our approach to this? Yeah. You know, I think if you uh, if you throwing money at the problem, as you put it, uh, that really requires us to look at what has happened with all this money. Right. So as you know, in my book, I have a chapter called the post-colonial resource frontier. Right. So the fact that in, and that really relates mainly to 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 Meghalaya, but applies to many other states as well. Meghalaya's coal industry, for instance, is really unbelievable. So we literally have child labor, uh, literally have incredibly primitive technology uh, where where we and, and coal mining went on. And only when the Na- National Green Tribunal uh, intervened, it became an issue. So why does it happen? It seems to me that kind of uncritical view of development. So do you want really development in that sense of the term? So why why does development takes a particular term, particular form in Northeast India? It seems to me that if you let's let's get away, let's become global, right? So for instance, we know that in in the 1990s in Indonesia, military dictatorship. As a result, you really have huge amount of forests given away to to very prominent families, and many of those plantations were ter- many of those forests were turned into palm plantations. And now, I would say, is part of the palm oil production. Global palm oil production is connected to that kind of story in Indonesia. Say clearly, India's democracy. India is not Indonesia, but some the parallels are disturbing. It seems to me. Clearly, we, 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 we are more democratic as a result. Shareholders, people who get some money out of this kind of transformation are larger, significantly larger. Right? Many, so many middle, what we'll call middle class Khasis became rich. Right, So, so that's a, probably a good thing if you like. But if you look at the environmental devastation, when you look at the kind of dispossession that is involved, the kind of uh, the, the work conditions in these mines. So it seems to me there are a whole set of new problems we are creating in Northeast India by not thinking about it, including almost if you, I would say there's almost a kind of re-feudalization, if you like. After all, if you think about simply what happens to when land in, in some of these states, which are really where we're doing settled agriculture earlier, now there is a huge transition to sell it, well, sorry, unsettled agriculture, kind of a more nomadic kind of an agriculture, if you like, and now more settled agriculture. And if you think of this kind of long term and who are the people who are doing settled agriculture, you'll find people who are coming in from other states, uh, uh, sometimes often referred to as Bangladeshi, to use the term, and with almost no rights, given the inner line, you have almost no rights at all, you're cultivating land. So we are creating this quite difficult diff, the problems and difficulties which are really getting more and more difficult to handle so if one then if you want to think about say uh, bring in these kind of issues then it becomes more than simply a naga conflict or a naga demand or a, you know it's almost as if we are creating a whole set of new problems by because we are not 
not questioning what is the downside of continuing this colonial era institutions. After all, the fact that all our boundaries are trying like inner line has continued till now. Right? I'm not saying this is easy to discontinue it, but doesn't mean there is no downside. And the downside becomes very clear when you look at things like that. Who is who is produce, who is involved in agriculture? What are the conditions emerging in Arunachali agriculture or, or, or on Meghalaya coal mines or in Nagaland agriculture? So if one takes that as one's broader, broader aim to make life more democratic, more equal, we are really creating all sorts of new problems by, 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 by continuing with some of these colonial era institutions. Doesn't mean discontinuing is the answer. But, we, but, but to do, what can we do with it? Right? What, what can be done in terms of reforms? That discussion even hasn't taken place. And the discussion doesn't take place because the discussion always takes the form of this insurgency, that insurgency, dealing with insurgency, and then uh, uh, throwing money at it. But, but the main roots of the problem, if you like, remains undiscussed, in, in my view. Sanjeev, your book is a product of not years, but decades of reflection, study, and actually personal experience of. And I just want to say that, you know, with all of this accumulated sort of thought and, uh, you know, experience behind you, I mean, how do you look at the Naga problem today? I mean, do you think there is a prospect that sometime in the near future, we might actually make a breakthrough and move to a different way of at least conceiving of the problem and tackling with it, if not finding a solution, or that, that we are condemned to sort of keep repeating the mistakes of the past simply because we don't know very much about it. Well, you know, I mean, the optimist in me hopes that we wouldn't do that, right? So, but on the other hand, we need a certain kind of a discussions to occur, to take place. Uh, and one, and, and I think uh, we're, uh, it's, it's easy to be pessimistic, but I would only hope. After all, one reason one writes books, one has these discussions is exactly that, hoping that a new generation will really begin new kind of a conversations. Um, so I would say I am I'm, uh, optimist in the long run, not very and not not optimistic in the short run because I think that the the, the kind of short run thinking that happens in politics uh, generally, and now more than ever, after all, if your main goal is to win elections, right, and then win elections have alliances which allow you to win elections. So just I would say that alone produces a particular political dynamic which makes long term solutions further and further. D development, my in my view, just a word we keep using. Right. I mean, you know, what is I mean, after all, the idea that, uh, you know, I, I would say I have taken quite seriously, for instance, the Indian. I, I, I looked up some of the uh, website of the of the of the uh, of, of our donor ministry, et cetera, et cetera. The mindset so looks interesting to me. Right. The kind of if you think about the kind of official mindsets shaping Indian policy. It's almost as if a place which is outside the kind of a, uh, in, in terms of developmental time don't belong to our time, right? In terms of nation building time, don't belong to our time. They're somewhere behind. They'll all catch up. And if that is the vision, it seems to me we should take this idea seriously. If that is the vision, it's very hard to be optimistic. So our point is, how do we get out of this kind of a way of thinking? And that kind of a discussion hasn't taken place. It's only my hope that it'll take place. Well, and your writings certainly are uh, one very crucial way in which uh, the rest of us understand the region. Sanjeev Barua, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Yeah. Bye-bye. 
for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. 